Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Spanish Football Podcast. We're recording on a Tuesday. It is the Monday pod, but yesterday was Boxing Day. Uh, a lot was going on uh, Christmas-wise, so we thought that you'd give us a day leeway. So thank you for bearing with us. But here we are uh, to look forward to the return of La Liga. Sid's been off covering the World Cup for the last seven weeks or so. You're still in World Cup mode, Sid, aren't you? You're not in La Liga mode yet. It starts in two days. I know I'm finding it really quite difficult, not necessarily to kind of get into La Liga as to as to shift my mind into something else. Um, I, I mean, this is this is a much more general point about how quickly the media moves on. And I think the media moves on too fast. And I think we're, we're always looking for the next thing. And what's the preview of the next thing and what's coming up? Because, of course, part of it is about, I suppose, selling the product that's coming rather than rather than enjoying the thing that's just happened. Um, but I'm finding myself much more drawn to kind of reading things about the World Cup mm-hmm. and going back and watching games. And I got back from Qatar and, and watched the final again and, and watched the build-ups of the final. And I'd, I'd recorded the ITV version. For some reason, I couldn't get BBC, which was most frustrating. Um, and sort of watched the build-ups of the final and tried to watch it again as if I was watching it live and kind of feel have a feel for it. And I, <laughs> I'm finding myself much more drawn to those pieces about how Argentina won it and, and, right. and Messi winning it and Mbappe and everything than I am to hang on this football around the corner. Now, I think today, yes, they might have changed it slightly because you said it was Boxing Day, which of course yes. meant that there was English football, which meant there was suddenly a focus of it actually is happening now. And the Spanish League has for a very long time, this has been one of the things that, that Javier Tebas, the president, has been fo- focused on, this idea that you can't allow England to dominate the Christmas period on its own. And so you have to put up some games to, to, to challenge England. He would love it to be on Boxing Day itself. I don't think that's going to happen in the short term. I suspect it will happen in the mid to long term. Um, but it does mean that we've got games. Is it tomorrow or the day after? Today, the day after. The day after. Hopefully, our listeners are looking forward to the return of uh, La Liga and and seeking out actively seeking out content which previews the return of La Liga. Un- unlike yourself, so uh, that's what we're. Well, here I'm to starting do. to no, because I have okay. I mean, as much as ah. it because it's a, it's a it's a professional obligation for me now. I'm, I'm just <laughs> finding it quite quite hard to get my head around it. All right, well, let's let's try and get our head around it together, and it can be a process. You mean to tell me you're not looking forward to Getafe against Mallorca on Friday? I will be going to that. Of course you will. <laughs> Bravo to Sydney. That's it. Uh, this is the fixture list which is coming up because it kicks off on on Thursday with the uh, the Michel Derby uh, Girona his current club against Rayo Vallecano his uh, his former club then we've got a tasty looking game Betis against Athletic Club and Atletico Madrid against Elche are you back in time to watch that I am yes on the telly though I won't I won't make it to the ground I'll I'll, 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 okay. I'll, be, I'll be rolling although actually you know what you've just given me a thought it's next to the airport. It's, it's right next, next to the, the airport. airport. <laughs> Hang on just a moment. <laughs> hey, you're, you're already back in the spirit. Uh, then on uh, Friday, we've got Getafe against Mallorca, Celta Vigo against Sevilla, uh, Andalus derby between Cadiz and Almeria, although there's about 400 kilometres between the two cities, so it's not exactly a, a local derby. Uh, via the lead against Real Madrid at 9.30pm on the 30th of December at the Estadio José Zorrilla, which is 
possibly the coldest place in Western Europe. It will uh, be there chilly. We go. Let's see. Uh, then on Saturday, it's uh, New Year's Eve and we've got local matches. So we've got the Barcelona derby at the camp now. Barca against Espanyol. You've got Real Sociedad against Osasuna. And Villarreal against Valencia at the all-new Estadio de la Ceramica. They've not played there all season, Villarreal. They've been redoing it. It's going to be ready and it's going to look uh, pretty, pretty special. Uh, those are the fixtures coming up then. What does the table look like? Because we're going to have people who are listening to us who haven't actually looked at the table for the last seven weeks. Um, well, Barcelona are top. They're two points ahead of uh, Real Madrid. And then there's a, uh, there's a bit of a jump in the points to a Real Sociedad, who are, not, are nine points back in third, Athletic Club uh, in fourth. There's actually seven teams uh, within five points of each other. Between third and ninth, there's only five points separating those teams. So the battle for Champions League football is uh, is really, really exciting. At the moment, it's only 14 games gone. It, it might sort of pan out be the usual suspects fighting for it come the end of the season uh, but at the moment there are loads of teams involved in that including the mighty Rayo Vallecano and Osasuna as well both of whom had really really impressive uh, starts to the season at the bottom of the table Elche the only team without a win all season just four points they are they're eight points from safety they've got a new manager Pablo Machin let's see how he gets on uh, then Cadiz and Sevilla, remember? Sevilla yeah, are in the relegation yeah. zone. You'd forgotten that, hadn't you, everybody? Well, they're, they're there. They're 18th. It's, um, it's quite extraordinary. And they are going to be one of the stories of the rest of the season as well. I mean, if they go down, it's one of the biggest stories in Spanish football in, in recent years. And if they manage to get themselves up and challenging for Europe, also it's a, it's a big, big turnaround. So Sydney, now I've given you a brief sort of overview of how things stand and you know you can admit that you weren't necessarily fully up to date with them with what was going on because you were in world cup mode um what what are you looking forward to what are the sort of storylines the potential things that that grab your attention well i I quite like the way the the place that you left off there and and i think you're Mm. right i think it's easy for us during those uh 12 weeks of the season that, that did happen to kind of allow ourselves to believe that it's not very real and actually a lot of the time it did feel like it wasn't very real it felt like a lot of what was happening was conditioned by the fact that there was a world cup coming it felt like a lot of it has been kind of broken by the world cup happening when it happened and it's almost as if we're restarting but of course you restart to use a i'm going to adapt a spanish idiom here you restart with that rucksack on your back and that rucksack is either full of points or got no points on it in it at all and you're in trouble. And then it's full of stones instead and it's weighing you down. And I'm absolutely murdering the metaphor at this point. But the, <laughs> the and I, I think that Sevilla story is is really, really significant. And, and as you said, it's one of the biggest stories in recent years. It genuinely is. You know, this is a team mm. that has, yes, it's true. It's not that long since it was in the second division. I think 2001, I think. Yeah, maybe, 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. Was, was when they came up. But they, they're a team that haven't just become... Um, a regular in the first division, they've become one of the genuine big teams in Spain. Um, if if it wasn't for Simeone, we'd be talking about them, I think, as being the third team in Spain. Uh, over the last 20 years, obviously, we've seen Valencia be that team. We've seen the very back end of Depor being that team. We've seen Atletico be that team. But Sevilla are definitely the other one. Uh, Sevilla have also, of course, um, been a, a presence, a, a fairly regular presence in the Champions League, and in particular become a European team with those five uh, Europa Leagues or UEFA Cups. They are a club that we look at. Six, sorry, yes. They are a club that we look at and I think this is one of the other reasons why this story is so significant. They're a club that we look at and we think that's a model of administration. 
That's a club that mm. does things well. That's a club that buys well, that sells well, that understands which players it wants, that buys the players that it needs, doesn't just buy any old player. It's a club that has an ecosystem that works for the footballers. It's a club that, yes, it's true, has actually been through quite a lot of managers, but there's a handful of managers who've lasted a reasonably long time. And even as they've been through managers and they've been through players, it's always felt like there is an overarching plan that has meant that it is largely made sense. Now, that's not always the case. You think back to Mitchell being manager, you think back to Marcelino being manager. You may even argue that you think back to the first spell of Sampaoli and you, you think maybe these weren't quite the managers that, that fit the way they wanted to be. But largely, this is a club that, that it works. And so to see them in this kind of situation, to see them in a situation where not only do you look at it and you think, well, actually, one of their longest serving managers and one of the managers that did seem to fit, Julian Lopetegui, was in a position where he's his place at the club was absolutely untenable. And that's despite the fact that largely he was quite liked, but it ended, I think, too late and everyone felt this should have ended sooner. Then Mm. you get in a situation where you've got, all right, so there's a degree of blame for him, but there's also you look at it and think this squad isn't well constructed. And this is the club that's embodied by well-constructed squads. This is the club that we all talk about Monchi as being the sporting director that knows what he's doing. So for Sevilla to find themselves in this position, I think is in itself really interesting. Then I think there's the other element to this, which is that the decision in terms of the way that they fix this now, I think is going to be really, really interesting as well. Because you are talking about going back to Sampaoli, who by the end of his first spell, you sort of felt like it didn't entirely fit. But there were, there were elements of what he'd done, certainly in that first six months, which were really good. You look at it and you think, this is a club that now has a, a month of a transfer window to try and fix it. And it's a real test, I think, of Monchi, which maybe hasn't happened before in the time that he spent at Sevilla. And you wonder, mm. how will this change? How many players will come in? Which players will come in? Who will go out? We've already seen the first to leave, of course, which is Isco. And maybe we'll talk about that later. So I think that they're a really, really fascinating story, even if they now finish 15th, mm. you know, which would be the, the kind of the epitome of, of averageness. Even that would be interesting. How did they get to that point? How did they reach that? I mean, that would be distinctly below average for Sevilla. That would be... Yes, very, but it's like, you know, it's the, yes. it's the epitome of, of, a, of, a, of an irrelevant team, if you see what I mean. Yeah. You know, a team that's 15th or 10th or something. Is <laughs> Guess who's 15th at the moment. For Sevilla, it'd be huge. Guess who's 15th at the moment. Um, I'm going to guess at Celta. <laughs> <laughs> Getafe. There we Getafe. Go. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what, I'll set them up, you knock them down. <laughs> yes. Uh, Sevilla haven't won at home all season. They yeah, have not won. They've only won two games and they've both come away from home. The good news for them is that they're, they're playing in Vigo. Uh, yeah, let's, let's back, go so. back to what we were just saying as well. That's another element in this. Um, yeah. You know, it's not just that Sevilla haven't won at home. This is Sevilla and we have talked endlessly, not least on our... On our um, TSFP Presents pods about the Sancho Pijuan being a special place, being a mm. place where in theory you go and you don't win, where the atmosphere is brilliant, where they really get behind the team. And actually there's been periods this season when they have, even when it's been going badly, but something mm. really strange is happening there. So yeah, I think they're a fascinating story to see out between now and the end of the season. Shall I chuck a couple of others in? Um, will she finally get a decent manager? Uh, okay, that's not, not, that wasn't top of my list, but okay, yeah, that is one. Yeah. <laughs> and can Barcelona hold on? Are Barcelona genuine league leaders? Now, Barcelona fans will get angry at me right now for saying, are they genuinely league leaders? Because they absolutely are, and there's no hiding that. But is this a team that's going to hold on? Or, or is there sort of enough residual trust and momentum in Real Madrid that Real Madrid will overhaul that? I, I think that's going to be really quite interesting because I think if Barcelona are still there and playing well and not conceding goals, because that's the big thing, for all that we talked about Lewandowski, it's the not conceding goals. If they're in that position in five, six weeks, 
then I think and, and Madrid are still relatively close to them. I think we've got a really good title race on our hands. Uh, five goals they've conceded all season in fourteen yeah. matches. It's a, it's a very and impressive... three of those are in the Clasico, aren't they? Yes, three of them are in the Clasico. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. right. I wanted to ask you about this title race because it does feel like <clears throat> it feels like one of these classic two horse title races that we were accustomed to a, a few years ago and no one else has been top this season it's been Real Madrid it's been Barcelona in previous seasons we've had even we've had Real Sociedad be be top we've had um, Villarreal make good starts this season we've had Atletico end up being champions but this season it looks like it's going to be Barcelona and Real Madrid back to that that classic two horse race yeah it does uh, and I must admit I'm disappointed by that um, of course we prefer it when there are other teams involved and, and I think you look at Atletico Madrid's record and it's not just those two league titles. Uh, I'm, I'm at the risk of getting this wrong now, but I think in the last seven years, I think they've finished ahead of Real Madrid four times. Mm. So I think it's four to three in terms of their head-to-head with Real Madrid. Now, that's not about them against Real Madrid. It's about demonstrating that there really, truly was a third team. You know, there wasn't just one 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 team against uh, you know the what one against the other there really was a third team almost all the way through this last decade um we've had as you say Sevilla and Real Sociedad and other teams that at times have looked like they might get in there i suspect that won't be the case this year but i do think that we've got a set of pretty strong teams competing for third fourth and fifth not least i think because we haven't got a very strong atletico although that's another story how much of atletico madrid's issues were about them not really having that sense of togetherness, not really having a collective identity. How much of that was built around the World Cup? How much of that changes now the World Cup's out of the way? And I do think the World Cup is, at least on a sort of subconscious level, a really big factor in everything we've seen so far this season. And I think at Atletico Madrid in particular. So I suppose the other question would be, do Atletico Madrid now emerge and become that third team again? Do they step away from the others? Now, one of the reasons to suggest not is that they've actually got quite a bit of stepping to do to do that. Um, well, they don't. I mean, they're only two points behind La Real, who are third. Yeah, but so, that, yeah. but but it's La Real who are third. It's Betis who are right on the back of them. They've yeah. got to throw off more than one team. Yes, that's true. And and and, yes. and, I, and and I kind of, I mean, I think they should probably step away and become that third team. But I'm not entirely convinced they will. Obviously, the other thing to factor into Atletico Madrid is. What happens now with Jao Felix? Yep. Um, what do they do about that striking position? They've just sold Cunha, although I think that's financial. I don't think that necessarily is a demonstration that they buy a centre-forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they only buy a centre-forward if another player goes. Um, and, and I where suppose, does Griezmann play? Where does Griezmann play? Um, <laughs> I would like to see him play with a free role as a forward, but, mm. but allowed to drop into midfield and become involved. But then you've mm. got to find it's quite difficult to build a structure that makes that work. Hmm. Just going back to the World Cup, it's occurred to me that, that 10 players are coming back to La Liga as world champions. There are 10 Argentines uh, from La Liga involved in that squad. Is it that many? Is, yeah, it's 10. Is it, I mean, some yeah. of them were relatively peripheral figures, uh, Geronimo Rulli, um, Juan Foyth, uh, etc. Yeah. But do you think, I mean, it's, is it a positive thing to come back as a world champion or, or could it actually be difficult to get back up? for the day-to-day grind. I mean, that is it's literally the biggest thing any of them will ever achieve. And to come back and, you know, to have an away game at Elche on a Tuesday night, maybe it's going to be difficult to, yeah. to, to, to be up for that again for, for, for those Argentine players. I don't know. Well, this, this speaks to the example I was giving on the, on the last podcast. I was talking about that, that time when Frank LeBerth was on... Was yes. on um, and he was like, I won the World Cup. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, and I think... 
I think there's an element of that. And I think for mm. some players it is difficult. And I also think, by the way, it's not always as deliberate as it sometimes seems, that sense of... No, yeah, it might just be it, subconscious. It, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's about the environment, about the sense of, you know, a, a World Cup... You could, right, I'll give you an example. And, 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 and the risk I mean, you're struggling. Unfair. You're struggling and you yeah, didn't exactly. even win the World Cup, you know. So, exactly. Yeah. I, I did win the World Cup, yeah. I you did, sort of, champion, yeah. yeah. You, you were there. Uh, you were there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, one example that, that always comes to my mind is Paul Pogba. You know the the, mm. the, 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 the the extraordinary performances of Paul, Paul Pogba at the last World Cup, the the sense of leadership, the sense of togetherness, the sense of him having a place, and then yeah. being at United, where it wasn't—I don't think it was a deliberate downing of tools. It was just this this sort of didn't feel like his place to him. And I, I'm All playing right, it, I'm a psychologist, and right, I'm playing it, I'm a psychologist very much from the outside here. But I think there's <laughs> there's, there's definitely an element of that, and and, and I, I think it's quite hard for players. And I think if you look at certain types of players. I think mm. different types of players respond differently, but certain types of players and players where they maybe need a structure around them. And I know he's not a world champion, but for example, someone like Jao Felix who needs a structure around him. I, I find Rodrigo de Paul's position really interesting in all of this because Rodrigo de Paul at Atletico Madrid started really well. Remember us talking about what a good mm. player we thought he looked for the first, what was it, four or five months, maybe six, I'm not sure. Um, and, and actually for the last six months, he's looked really quite poor. Um, every now and again you see something from him but it, it sort of hasn't felt right and you watch him with Argentina and it's not that he's amazing it's not that he's suddenly pulling out sensational passes although his passing's good it's the sort of the, the sense of being everywhere and being involved in 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 everything in a in a kind of auxiliary role and, and uh, you know I hope those who those of our listeners who are kind of tactical analysts and and, and and are interested in the tactical side of things aren't screaming at me for this but I I, I watch him and I sort of think with Argentina does he kind of need someone like Messi to feel like he's serving, if you like, that, that, that supporting role and it's really worth it because it's for this guy? And that maybe at Atletico Madrid, it's been harder for him to feel like he's playing that role because he's not sort of working towards someone, if you see what I mean. Um, and I just wonder if maybe he felt that more in the year that they won the league and doesn't so much feel it now. I mean, that is quite a sort of deep delve into amateur psychology. But yeah, I mean, you know, it could, could possibly be something in there, definitely. Um, shall we talk about the final missing piece of the puzzle for Raya Vallecano's Champions League push? And that is R.D.T. He's available, he's back, he's back with Rayo, and he is going to propel them to top four glory. Well, I don't know, but there are only... They're only two points off a Champions League spot, Rio, and they have had a, a tremendous f- opening 14 games of the season. And they've got a really good striker to come into this. I mean, Raul de Tomas is a 30, 40 million euro striker. Easily, easily. And yeah. they got him for 8 million. Okay, they had to wait for six months for him to play. But it's an incredible deal for Rio. And okay, I'm being a little, a little bit optimistic and a little bit tongue in cheek. But he comes into this team and they start scoring more goals, which has been a little bit of a problem for them this season. They could challenge for Europe. Yeah. I, I, and I'm I'm allowing myself to be as optimistic as you. I, I think I think they're a really good team, very very well organised. I think they understand exactly how they want to play. the The approach is very clear. The approach is very difficult for opposition teams to to stop as well because it's it's an approach that doesn't necessarily um, allow you to get on top of them because they move the ball really really quickly. So I, I think they you know they they're, they're very really quite direct. They at times maybe it lacks a little bit of subtlety, yeah, perhaps. But I think it's it's very difficult to stop. The question I suppose would be, I suppose there's two. One is directly about Raul de Tomas, which is 
how quickly does a player get up and running when he's been out for this long? Mm. Um, emotionally, now you would, you would imagine, wouldn't you, that he's absolutely invested in this now because he knows what he's lost. And that includes, by the way, going to a World Cup because I think had he been playing regularly, he may well have got in that Spain squad. You don't know for sure, and maybe not, but he, he would have been a candidate for that Spain squad. So he knows he's missed a World Cup. He knows he's missed a lot of football. In that sense, he also knows that he left Espanyol with quite a lot of questions about him mm. in terms of his attitude. Um, and, and I personally think some of those might be a little bit unfair. And I certainly think that given the way that he's talked about it, he feels that some of those are unfair. And so in if you add all of these ingredients together, this is a guy with a point to prove and time to make up. And so he should hit the ground running. But is it that simple when you haven't been competing uh, on a physical level, on an emotional level to just kind of start playing? So that's about him. The other part is about him and about this team. How well does he fit? Now, we think he fits quite well in terms of how they play. But inevitably, that involves a degree of, of retuning, a degree of slightly shifting the way that the forward plays. Because we saw that, for example, that team was slightly different with Falcao in it as it was with Sergio Guardiola in it as it was with Camello in it. And so you now look at it and go, Raudel Tomas does different sorts of things. He quite likes the ball to him early. He quite likes to play a role in the building up of the, t- of, of, of the moves when, in fact, Rio were a team that build up from the wings rather than through to the forward immediately. So there might be a, a, a bit of, um, what would we call it, kind of recalibration, I suppose, mm. of that. But you're right, on the face of it, mm-hmm. he gives them the goals that they haven't always taken because I actually think they're a team that create more chances than they, they do, do score goals. Yes. And they score a reasonable amount of goals as it is. Yes. Yeah, uh, really interested to see how Raya get on with Raul de Tomas. Just behind them in the table, a place and a point behind Raya, Avia Real, who have got Kike Setien, the new manager who came in with a, a few matches to go before the World Cup break and begged everyone, you know, give me a bit of time, give me some time to work with the players. He did not hit the ground running, uh, two defeats, and then they scraped a win against Espanyol in the final game before the the World Cup, there were suggestions that he might actually have been sacked before that World Cup break. It, it didn't happen. He's had the time that he's wanted to with the players, although last week in the Copa del Rey they were taken to extra time by Loli Guijuelo before overcoming them 2-1. Gerard Moreno's back from injury. That will help, obviously, having a player of his, his quality, but it does feel like teams create a lot of chances against this Villarreal side. Even when they don't have a lot of the ball, Villarreal absolutely dominate possession with Kike Setien and yet still look a little bit defensively vulnerable. And if they don't hit the ground running, he's going to be under a huge amount of pressure very, very quickly. Yeah, and I think the fact that there was suggestions that he would go before the World Cup actually increased that pressure because I think it increases that sense of we should have acted before. And as soon as you start thinking we should have acted before, then you have the pressure to act now. So like, we were slow then, let's not be slow again. And, and so I think he needs, to, he needs to be winning quickly. On the face of it, this is a team with the kind of players that, that Setien likes. On the face of it, this is, this is a team that could play his way. Um, I think a team that was just about underachieving already this season, because we said lots of times we thought that in terms of the squad, in terms of the quality of the players, they, they, they really should have been a team that could compete, maybe not for the league title, although possibly, but certainly for the top four. Um, and that wasn't really happening. I still think that's the case with Setien. I still think that he, in a way, he shouldn't be asking for time because he had all the all the, all the things that were, that he should need were there. They, they, you know, this isn't this isn't the case of a manager 
Um, first of all, it shouldn't necessarily be a case of a manager completely changing the style. Because while there are some shifts with Setien, of course there are, actually you can ease your way into that because you've got a, a style that I think he can embrace even if it's a little bit more defensive, a little bit more cautious, all of those kind of things. Although I actually think sometimes with Setien, we make the mistake of thinking he's an attacking manager. I think he's a controlling manager rather than an attacking manager, if you see what I mean. And I think that's, that can be really great to watch when they get it right, but it can also um, kind of segue into that sort of possession for its own sake problem that, that, that occasionally happens, well, what happened with Spain at the World Cup, for yes. example. Um, I, I, I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens with them. And, and it feels, doesn't it, like there isn't a huge amount of warmth for him, which seems to me very premature, very premature mm-hmm. for that to be the case, but, but, but maybe so. Um, the other thing I would say, I suppose, here is that we talk about time to work with his players, but he's had quite a lot of players away. Um, not all of them, but but a handful of, of, of important players. I suppose the good thing from his point of view, if you look at a spine of that team, you go, Albiol didn't go to the World Cup, although he left Albiol out, didn't he, the first couple of games, which to me was strange. Um, Danny Parejo didn't go to the World Cup. Gerard Moreno didn't go to the World Cup. Now, those are three players that, mm. in theory, should be the, the, the spine of your team. So, so mm. maybe that helps. Yes, Let's see, their first two games are their local derby against uh, Valencia and then Real Madrid. So it's a, it's a big big restart for, for Villarreal and let's see how they get on under Kike Setien and how long he's there. A quick word then about the uh, the potential relegation battle as well, not the, well, the relegation battle and, and, and who's going down. Uh, Elche, eight points from safety. They look, they look doomed. Cadiz are level on points with uh, Sevilla and then you've got Celta, Espanyol, Getafe, Almeria, Girona, uh, Valladolid and Mallorca are separated by uh, I'm trying to do the maths eight points so all those teams will be looking over their shoulders but which of the three you feel are going to go down? Well I mean Elche if only because of the size of the gap um, and I said earlier I floated as one of the questions whether Elche might finally have found a manager but even if they have that's, that's a free match winning run needed to turn it round and that's a big ask I mean yes it's true that it's not impossible and you only have to have a couple of good weeks and suddenly everything looks totally different but it's a big ask um, and, and, and Pablo Machin has a slightly checkered record as a manager doesn't he it, it, yes. it's been curious his his career because it was absolutely brilliant to start with and what he did at Girona was was brilliant but it it never really seemed to fully translate into into other clubs um, so I think you've got to say that they're favourites I feel like Cadifar if only because I feel like there are limitations with with, with Cadiz's squad. Um, I, I think that they are largely in the place that they would expect to be. That's one thing that I suppose would make you think maybe that... And, and this is important. I don't know how important because I don't know how to judge this and how to measure it. But I think it's important teams who sort of have been there, who kind of don't don't lose their heads over the fact that they're near the bottom because they always expected to be near the bottom, mm. if you see what I mean. You know, so, so a team like Sevilla... Or maybe a team like Celta, um, who've also changed the manager. You, you, you sort of find yourself in that position. And I think there is a, a possibility that you panic. Now, obviously, there's a quality to pull you out of it as well. Or maybe there's a possibility to not panic enough. To think, ah, oh, well, we're better than this. This will come. And, and I, I do think there is something to be said for teams who understand what it is to be down there. And you know what? I'm not really thinking so much about Cadiz in this, but I'm thinking about Mallorca. And mm. I think Mallorca's position, as you say, you've named them as one of the team's in theory, in that relegation fight, I think they'll be really happy with where they are. I'm really happy about how well it's going and their sense of, if you like, their sense of control over their destiny, their sense of, of where this leads them and, and, and where they are. And I think, broadly speaking, the same will be true of Viadalith, 
who I think play really quite nice football at times. It's not consistent. It's not regular throughout their games, but there's, there's moments. And so I think those two teams who I would norm, normally say to you, well, Vidaly from Mallorca are candidates for sure. And they still are candidates, by the way. I look at them and I feel like they sort of, it feels like they know where they are and, and they know what they're doing. And so I suppose you would say Elche with Cadiz and with, and with, I mean, you would think Espanol shouldn't get dragged into it, but could do. So who am I yeah. missing? I, mean, I feel like I'm missing someone from down there. Uh, Getafe, Almeria. Almeria, Girona. maybe. Almeria, maybe. But let's see yeah. what Almeria do in this transfer window. Although, of course, we know that although they have the money, they don't have the financial fair play margins to be able to make the signings that they might, might want to. They've brought in Colombian Luis Suarez. So let's see if Yeah, can, and, and that's potentially a very good signing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, speaking of goals, let's just remind ourselves who are the top goal scorers in La Liga because, again, that's something that everybody will probably have forgotten in these uh, seven weeks. Robert Lewandowski, Barbie, has banged in 13 goals for Barcelona. He's leading the way uh, clear ahead of Borja Iglesias and Vedat Morici of Mallorca who have both got uh, eight uh, then uh, Barry Aspas and Joselu uh, are on seven Chimi Avila has got six along with Bryce Vinny Jr and Fede Valverde so there we go that was our little preview pod of what's coming up in La Liga what to look forward to some of the storylines that we're looking forward to obviously we didn't talk about everything and we didn't go in depth on Barcelona or Real Madrid if you'd like us to do so, why not become a, a patron at patreon.com forward slash TSFP. We do a, a Q&A pod every week and a bonus podcast every week. And you get Al's paper reviews as well. Loads and loads and loads of bonus content there. So if you're in any way a fan of Spanish football, it might be worth investing for little euros or dollars or pounds a month uh, for uh, extra content. Patreon.com forward slash TSFP. Uh, Sydney, uh, have a safe flight. You're off to the UK for a couple of days. Make sure you get back in time for Atletico against Elche. And uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll speak soon, amigo. Adios. Cheerio.